Welcome. Very good to see you all this morning. Good to be together. I'm going to read the passage now. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 29. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go down to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the beginning of a thing than its, uh, the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not with wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Nor be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for just the chance to be together this morning. Um, It is a precious gift and privilege that you've given us uh, to be your church, to be your people, to gather together. Um, We praise you. We worship you for who you are. You are a good God. Your ways are high above our ways, and um, the things of, of you are deep and very deep, as this passage says. It's 
it's uh, impossible for us to fully grasp who you are and how, how great you are. Um, but we know that you are good. We know that you are wise. We know that we can trust you fully. And so we praise you this morning. We confess that often our hearts stray from you, um, that it is, it is true, the, true what this passage says, that there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, and that you have made things right. You have made things good, and we, in our humanity, from uh, the very beginning, have turned those good things into things that are uh, tainted by sin. So we confess that to you. We confess our own sin, and um, we thank you that there is a way for us to experience your grace and your goodness, and that's through Jesus. Thank you for salvation that comes through him. Thank you that he has uh, come to um, turn things back to redeem what we have broken as, as humans and um, has made a way for us to be with you forever. So thank you for Jesus, and um, we, we thank you for a chance again to be the church. We pray for um, your help this week. We thank you for the opportunity to set aside a week for prayer and fasting and pray that you would um, just uh, just bless those uh, efforts or those that time that we have. I pray that we would um, come away from this week with a real deep sense of clarity that you are all we need and um, that you are our sustenance and that um, even more than food, you are our very life. So unite us together as a church as we do this this week and especially unite our hearts to you. And now we commit this uh, these next several minutes to you and Jordan and his sermon. Pray that you would speak through him, um, that your word would be what we need to hear. We know that it is what we need to hear. I pray that you would make our hearts receptive to it and um, challenge us where we need to be challenged, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and most of all, help us to see you more clearly, to worship you, and um, to live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for reading that very long passage, Josh. I know that was a lot. And also, thanks to Kyle Cowan, who built our very own fancy uh, new pulpit here. He even engraved that logo. Uh, he's got a new side business, if you're interested in any engravings of anything. Uh, he also makes good water bottles, which I've gotten from him as well. But thanks, Kyle. This is really cool. I can't believe you did this, but especially since you're a husband, dad, and busy athletic director. So I'm glad you found a, a fun hobby there. Uh, well, yeah, today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I uh, definitely want to keep your Bible open to that. Uh, I'll be honest, this was a passage I really struggled to wrap my head around this week. Even our preaching team meeting on Monday was about the quietest we've ever been as a group trying to figure out how to interpret this passage. But thankfully, the Lord is good, and, and through really studying it and reading commentaries and stuff like that, uh, I've, I found this passage to be really enjoyable and, and a good reminder of, of what it means to be seeking after the Lord, and, and I hope you guys get that this morning as well. Um, so thanks to everyone who's praying for me this week. Uh, special shout out to, you guys don't know him, but Philip Ryken's commentary on Ecclesiastes. Wow, what a help this week to even help me know how to structure this thing. So uh, there's a lot in this passage. This could be a easily an hour to an hour and a half long sermon. I'm not going to do that to you unless, show of hands if you want me to real quick, I can. Okay. Um, so I'll keep it short. So I'm going to touch on the majority of this. There's going to be some stuff that's I don't like actually read that verse and explain it to you. It's it's all being touched on, but 
man, Ecclesiastes is so rich and so deep. There's just a lot of time we could be spending on this to, to really uh, get all the ins and outs of what Solomon is teaching us here. Well, we all want to know like the right way to live, don't we? It, it's kind of hardwired into us, and, and this desire can be wide-ranging of how to live. Um, we all want to know what, what's the best way to manage my time. Uh, when should I seed my lawn so it grows properly this year? Don't ask me. You should look at my backyard. I have no idea. I need help on that if you're a lawn person. What's the best food to start my day with? Cereal, of course. Wheaties, breakfast of champions. That's how I started my day. Uh, what startups would be a good place for me to invest my money into? How can I live at peace with my spouse, my kids, my friends, my boss? How can I uh, succeed at work? Maybe for some of the crazy people out there, how do I maintain a runner's high? Why would you... Why is that something you're trying to seek the answer to? But some people want to know. We all want to know how to live wisely and well. And that's why our bookshelves and our podcast libraries are full of, of all sorts of advice about how to do life under the sun. We all know, sort of by instinct, that there's, there's just a better way to do life than others, and we're really eager to find it. And that is why for me, and I hope for you too, that I'm finding this, this sermon series on Ecclesiastes to be so helpful. Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles to tell us really how to live, and really that, that call is boiling down to of how to live with wisdom is what Solomon is seeking, seeking throughout his whole journey here. So the preacher, also known as Solomon, who's our guide through Ecclesiastes, he wants to talk about wisdom itself in chapter 7. Now, he hasn't touched on the topic of wisdom since all the way back in chapter 2 when he found that wisdom uh, was lacking. This section sees Solomon look closely at wisdom and what, what the benefits are, of wisdom are, but, and keep this in mind as we go through it, he also is going to talk about the limitations of wisdom. Wisdom has its benefits, but wisdom also has its limits, and he wants to give us the real truth about what that is. So to help us uncover the, the real truth about wisdom that, that Solomon is trying to teach here, we're going to answer three questions this morning. First, what are wisdom's benefits? Basically, what, what is the goodness of wisdom? Second, what are wisdom's limits? Again, it would seem like limits on wisdom is not something you would come to mind with since we're told to pursue wisdom so much all throughout Scripture, but, but there are limits there. And finally, how do we live in light of wisdom's benefits and limits? How do we live knowing that both of these things are true? So three questions we'll answer, and the first question will be, what are wisdom's benefits? So this is kind of coming from uh, the first 12 verses here, uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 12. I'm not going to reread it just because I'd add an extra 10 minutes to my sermon if I'm rereading this passage. Josh did a great job. But our passage here begins with essentially a list of Proverbs that wouldn't be out of place in the actual book of Proverbs is really how this section is written here. Some people have referred to this as the better than poem, as Solomon compares and contrasts a lifestyle of wisdom and folly, and you'll be shocked to hear that wisdom comes out on top in the comparison between wisdom and folly. In, in the first four verses here, Solomon seems to be almost in like a real downer of a mood, and, and at first glance, it doesn't seem to be making much sense. He tells us that uh, death is better than being born, going to a funeral is better than a party, sorrow is better than laughter. Now, anyone here want to sign up for death, funerals, and sorrow over birthdays, parties, and laughter? Like, is that like, oh yeah, you just totally described me. 
yeah, I didn't think I'd have a lot of hands go up on that because there's none. Maybe if you're like Tim Burton or something like that, you're like, oh yeah, death, that's so cool. I don't know. Uh, so what, what is Solomon trying to communicate to us here? This doesn't seem to make sense. Well, if you're someone who's constantly looking for the next good time, the, the next great party, the, the next fun thing to laugh at, you'll enjoy the moment while it lasts, but you don't have a realistic perspective on life. The person always chasing the next fun thing is, is going to be crushed if adversity or hardship ever comes their way. Whereas the person who's aware of grief and loss and the, the finite nature of the life that they live, they're going to take more seriously the time that they have and will have a proper, wise perspective on the happenings of their time on earth. I know for me, when I see this passage, I'm immediately reminded of the Apostle Paul's writing in Philippians 1, uh, 21 and 23, in comparing life with death, Paul found it hard to decide which was better. He says, which I choose, I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. So on the one hand, Paul's saying, the longer I live, the more opportunity I have to work for the kingdom of God. But if I die, I immediately get to be in the presence of Christ. And what could possibly be better than that? So that's where we get the verse, for, to me, uh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's why, really for us, it's weird to say, but the day of a believer's death is the best day of their life. Like, that's a weird statement to make, and that goes against everything that our world and culture would teach us. Thomas Boston wrote, in the day of his birth, he was born to die, but in the day of his death, he dies to live. Death is our entrance into glory. What Charles Spurgeon described as the day believers reach their port all danger over and come to their desired haven. So for those who are wise, those who fear the Lord, death is not something to be afraid of, but it's the beginning of what true life actually is. Though losing loved ones is hard and it does bring us grief and sorrow, as the synthesoid android, the vision, said on this past week's episode of WandaVision, I promise no spoilers, but this was really profound, what is grief if not love persevering? That's beautiful vision. What is grief if not love persevering? You don't expect to get that out of a comic book TV show, but that's like really speaking to me. It is. Grief is just our love persevering for those that we've already lost. Sorrow is just a more profound aspect of what love actually is in our lives. So in the next couple of verses, verses 5 and 6, Solomon here is simply stating that wisdom's rebuke is better than folly's laughter. One of the best ways to learn how to live well in, in this vain, meaningless life that we've seen so far in Ecclesiastes is to receive correction from people who are wiser than we are. This is not what most people want to hear. I think most of us are not like, yeah, I just like, I really like people telling me I'm not doing things the right way. Like, I, I don't think that's something we sign up for normally. They'd prefer to listen what the preacher calls here the song of fools in verse 5. Well, much like a fire made of thorns, if you, if you decide to do a, a big bonfire made out of thorns, that's going to burn out very quickly compared to a fire made of, of logs and coal. Well, so too will laughter eventually die out because life isn't just a party. This is why Solomon says it's much better for us to hear the rebuke of the wise. Someone who cares enough to confront will tell us to get serious about life and death. Listening to the constructive criticism of a godly friend, man, that, that can save our soul. Wise people will tell us that living for pleasure and working for selfish gain is striving after wind. 
They will tell us that God has a time for everything, including a time to be born and a time to die. They will tell us that two are better than one in facing the toils of life. They will tell us that money will never satisfy our souls. In short, they will teach us not to live for today, but to live for eternity. This is what Solomon has been starting to reach the conclusion of so far in Ecclesiastes. The next section of these Proverbs, uh, verses 7 through 10, goes along with this idea to look ahead, take a long-term view of our lives. Many things that, that do not seem all that promising at the beginning, they, they do turn out well at the end. This is, is always true of, of really anything that has the blessing of God uh, in it. If we look at Romans 8.28, we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. All's well that ends well in God's gracious plan. We see this most clearly of all in God's plan of salvation. Think of it. Think back to Bethlehem, all right? In Bethlehem, you have a young bride with her older husband, a humble stable, a few lowly shepherds, and a baby that is born in a manger. It's a pretty meek beginning. Who would ever imagine this would be the start of an empire, of a baby who eventually becomes king, and that by offering himself as a sacrifice, he would gain the forgiveness of sins for people from all nations. Yet the end will be much better than the beginning. What began with a baby, a baby born in a barn will culminate in the Savior reigning on his eternal throne in heaven. So seeing the full scope of God's plan also helps us to avoid another error here. If the temptation in verse 8 is to be pessimistic about the future, the temptation in verse 10 is to be nostalgic for the past. Uh, some people like to talk about the good old days, right? Uh, I'm sure none of you older people in here ever talk about the good old days back in high school. Uncle Rico, man, I could throw that football a quarter mile. Coaches put me in, we would have won state, right? Uh, they want to go back to the way things were. It was always better then, probably because they forget that things weren't as great as they actually thought that it was. But rather than looking forward, they always seem to be looking backward. Well, take a godly perspective of what is happening in the world. Wait for God to work his plan, believing that the best is truly yet to come. Looking at life this way, it, it requires the attitude that the preacher talks about in verse 8, where he says that patience is better than pride. Rather than arrogantly assuming that, that we know best, we should humbly submit to God as we wait for him to work things out. In all of these, these varied exhortations about life and death, about wisdom and folly, about waiting patiently to see what God will do, Solomon is teaching us the right way to live and to look at life. He ends these Proverbs by restating the value of wisdom. Verses 11 and 12, he says, uh, wisdom is good with an inheritance, or wisdom is like having an inheritance, could be a better translation, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now the connection here, it, it actually seems sort of surprising. After everything else that Solomon has said about money so far in this book, and the way it fails to satisfy our soul, you wouldn't expect him to now compare wisdom to money in a positive light. Well, here the Bible says that wisdom, wisdom is basically as good as an inheritance. And what he, he, he knows all too well is that money doesn't last forever. Solomon's totally aware of this, right? But as long as we have it, if we're being honest, money is useful in providing some protection against the, the practical difficulties of a daily life. 
Well, similarly, wisdom is protection for the soul. It helps us deal with the reality of death. It guards us against impulsive anger. Uh, It helps us to take a long-term view of what God is doing in the world. Wisdom may even save our souls, according to Solomon in, in verse 12. He claims that it preserves the life of him who has it. True spiritual wisdom gives us spiritual vitality as long as we live, and when it comes time for us to die, it'll lead us to everlasting life. So these first 12 verses, they're answering the question, what are wisdom's benefits? But then verses 13 through 18, the next section we'll look at here, we need to answer what are wisdom's limits? Well, at this point in our passage, Solomon introduces God into the equation. And he makes a similar statement that we saw all the way back in, in, in Ecclesiastes 1.15. The wording of these verses is almost identical between 1.15 and 7.13. What is crooked cannot be made straight. But the first time he says this, uh, he's leaving God out of the picture. He's looking at the world without God and telling us how meaningless it all is. But here in chapter 7, he brings God back into the picture, or really for the first time. He's looking at the world according to God. He's putting uh, both the straight things and the crooked things in life under his divine sovereignty. So this right here, this is a huge turning point in the book of Ecclesiastes. As the rest of the way forward, the preacher is going to point to God as the true meaning of life that has been missing thus far in Solomon's experiments. So here in verses 13 and 14, we're really confronted with the limit of wisdom in that we can't and don't know everything that the holy, perfect, all-wise God knows and does. There are some things in life that that are going to be crooked. Now, when we say crooked here, we're not saying that God is doing something evil, how we might normally think of the word crooked. No, it's talking about that sometimes trouble or difficulty in life are going to pop up, and it's going to be things that we wish we could change, but we can't. This happens to all of us. We struggle with the the physical limitations of our bodies. We suffer the the breakdown of personal or family relationships. Uh, We have something that we wish we did not have, or we don't have something that we wish we did have. Sooner or later, there is something in life that we wish that God had a different shape to. And of course, there's nothing that we can do to straighten what is crooked. We can't change what God has done unless and until God wants to change it. We're under the power of the sovereign and omnipotent ruler of the entire universe. So we don't have the power to edit his plan for our lives. But this shouldn't, this shouldn't drive us to despair. The sovereignty of God actually gives us hope through all the trials of life. Yes, we are going to suffer frustration in a fallen sinful world. But the Bible says that we suffer these things actually by the will of God who's planning to set us free from all the vanity of life and who's working all things together for our good, as we saw in Romans 8.28. Solomon says further that it's impossible for us to know what's going to happen in the future. Given what he said at the beginning of verse 14, we might assume that the righteous people are the ones who prosper and the wicked will always suffer adversity. But sometimes the exact opposite occurs. You can probably think of real-life examples in your own life you've seen this play out. The righteous suffer adversity while the ungodly prosper. So it's impossible for us to predict what will happen in the coming days. We just don't know how this is going to play out. 
as the preacher says in verse 14, man may not, may not find out anything that will be after him. We have no way of knowing whether the coming days will bring us greater prosperity or greater adversity. In living with this kind of uncertainty, though, again, this shouldn't cause us to live uh, full of anxiety or hopelessness. Rather, it should teach us that we need to leave our future in God's hands. Most of us, if we're being honest, we prefer to control our own destiny. And I think that's probably the way that we, we first think about things before we turn to God. Instead, we should entrust our lives to the loving care of our sovereign God. Most, uh, excuse me, if we do this, we will be well prepared for both the good days and the bad days when we're living under his control rather than our own. It's one thing to say, though, that we believe in the sovereignty of God, but another thing to live that out in a world that, that often does seem meaningless. So no sooner has the preacher told us to consider the works of God than he struggles with God's sovereignty in verses 15 through 18, if you look at those. Remember here, Solomon is totally committed to telling us the truth about life. That seems to be his main mission as he's writing this. He's being very honest. Uh, here he tells us that sometimes life just seems desperately unfair. Uh, verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Again, we talked about this. This is exactly the opposite of what most people would expect in a world that is governed by a good and righteous God. It's one of the main reasons why some people say they don't believe in God. How could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? It's a common question. Well, the righteous people are the ones uh, who ought to rejoice in their prosperity, while the wicked suffer adversity until they are finally confronted with having to admit that God is real and in control. And all too often, though, we see what Solomon saw. Righteous people dying before their time, and the ungodly keep on living. This paradox, paradox almost seems to contradict the Bibles in other places. It's not, okay, before you think that, I'm not teaching that. But there's times where God tells his people that if they did what he said, he's going to bless them with specifically long life in the promised land. He talks about in Deuteronomy. Uh, he also threatened to punish his enemies with death for their disobedience. But sometimes... God's plans are bigger than ours, and we don't totally know why things are happening the way that they are. So how should we deal with this? Well, if you read it as is, it almost like Psalm is saying we need to live a, a, a middle-of-the-road approach to life. We shouldn't be uh, overzealous about wisdom or overzealous about foolishness, overzealous about righteousness or overzealous about wickedness. Is that really what he's saying, though? <laughs> That's a weird way He's like, ah, here's my conclusion. Just, just kind of be a middle person. Just be in, be in the gray. Uh, I do think that there are many people today who do believe they shouldn't be too good or too evil. Here's what I mean by that. They know better than to live a life of total wickedness because deep down they believe that, that God will judge people for their sins. Yet secretly they suspect that if they try to live a holy life, they'll take all the fun out of it, right? I just always, you know, life's not fun if I'm just doing good stuff. Generally speaking, they try to be good, and they hope that they're good enough to get by on the day of judgment. But their consciences are troubled too little by their sins. As long as they're not overly righteous or overly wicked, they're just happy with the way that they are. I think Solomon, though, is trying to tell us 
something different, though. Uh, when he tells us not to be overly righteous, is the word he uses there, what he's really saying is not to be self-righteous. If you look at uh, the verb that he's using here in, in the Hebrew language, uh, this, this might be referring more to someone who is only pretending to be righteous and is just playing the part of a wise man. So this is the kind of person that does not have uh, the true holiness that comes by faith, but only the hypocritical holiness that comes by their own works. After all, think of it this way. If God's standard is perfection, that would be total righteousness would be perfection, right? And that we're, we're called to love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. Then how could someone ever be overly righteous? That doesn't even make sense. That's like a, a logical fallacy. Overly righteous is an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp or crash landing or pretty ugly. I love oxymorons. They're so funny. Uh, you can't be more perfect than perfect, right? Perfect is perfect. And guess what? We can't reach that standard anyways. So we can't be overly righteous because we're not even going to reach the first standard of righteous. No, our real problem is thinking that we're more righteous than we really are. Somehow there never seems to be a shortage of people who think that they're good enough for God. When we think too highly of ourselves, when we rest on our own righteousness, then it's easy for us to say, I don't deserve to be treated like this. Doesn't God know who I am? And it's not a very short step from there to then say, who does God think that he is? So the preacher cautions us to not be too righteous, overly righteous. Of course, this doesn't mean the inverse that, hey, we should be a little unrighteous then. That, that's also not what he's saying here. Uh, Solomon warns us against this mistake in verse 17 when he tells us not to be too wicked. His point is not that it's okay for us to be just a little bit wicked as if there's some acceptable level of sin in our lives. When it comes to sin, e even a little sin is too much. His point, rather, is that there's greater danger in giving ourselves over to evil, over to a life of sin. It's one thing to, to sin from time to time, as is going to happen even in our journey of believers of trying to pursue sanctification, of pursuing holiness. The preacher says this uh, in, in verse 20 uh, later on, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But there's a huge difference between committing the occasional sin and, and, and seeking repentance when we do mess up because we recognize this is not how God has created us to be, and making a deliberate decision to pursue a lifestyle of, of theft, deception, lust, and greed. Don't be a fool, he's saying here. If you live in sin, you will perish if that's the path that you take. So our wisdom will leave us short in trying to understand why things are crooked in this world, what comes next in life, or why sometimes the wicked outlast others. But Solomon has a solution to when our wisdom isn't enough. But that's where we get to verse 18, a super important verse in this passage. The right way for us to live is to live in fear of God. Notice in verse 18 that the person who fears God will escape the dangers of death and destruction. The fear of God is one of the great themes in the second half of Ecclesiastes as we move forward here. As the book moves from the vanity of life to the fear of its creator. And when we get to the very end of Ecclesiastes, spoiler, his conclusion is that uh, Solomon tells us to fear God and to keep his commandments. Here he tells us to fear God and to escape the coming judgment. So, so what does it mean to fear God? Well, to fear God means to revere God. It is to know that, that he is God and we are not. 
It's to hold him in awe for his majestic beauty. It's to have respect for his mighty and awesome power. Having the true and proper fear of God will help us to not become so self-righteous. We will know that, that God sees us as we really are, and this will teach us to not pretend to be something that we are not. The fear of God will also keep us from, from living a wicked life because when we understand his holiness, the last thing that we will want to do is fall under his judgment. So here we, we've seen the benefits and limits of wisdom, and now our final question is, so, so how do we live in light of this, of wisdom's benefits and limits? Well, this is a question that Solomon has been trying to answer on the, this spiritual quest, this journey that he's going through. From the beginning of this book, he's been trying and often failing to figure out what actually matters in life. That's where we get vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Yet even when he did not have all the answers, he still wants to know what the right way to live is. So throughout chapter 7, he's been praising the value of wisdom. He's showing its practical benefits. Uh, early in the chapter, in, in verse 12, he, he basically says that wisdom is a lifesaver. Protect us. Here he says uh, in verse 19 that it will make us strong. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. But no sooner has Solomon talked about wisdom's strength than he tells us how hard wisdom is to find. Here was a man who had dedicated his whole life to the pursuit of wisdom, who had searched long and hard for the meaning of life. Notice the, the active verbs that he uses here. Uh, verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. Verse 25, I have turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. As he is describing his quest for knowledge, he's not just talking about the many things that, that he investigated in chapter 7, the value of a good name, the, the way adversity brings more wisdom than prosperity, how to accept what God has made crooked, and so on. What he's actually doing here, he's applying to everything that he's investigated since the beginning of Ecclesiastes. When he says uh, in verse uh, chapter 113, he said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I think about this. Has there ever been a man more seriously attempting to understand the meaning of life than Solomon of Ecclesiastes? It's his entire journey. He says in verse 23, I will be wise. And then over the course of many years, he tried everything to learn the, secret, the secrets of wisdom. Yet at the end of all of his questing, he had to admit, perhaps reluctantly, uh, least humbly, that he had failed to find the wisdom he had been seeking all of his life. Verse 23 and 24, it was far from me. He's lamenting here. It was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? At this point, it almost seems like the whole book of Ecclesiastes is going to end in failure. He's looking for wisdom that he cannot find. His quest has failed. He's, he's unable to explain the purpose of life or explain why everything matters. I think sooner or later, all of us encounter those same questions with the same doubts. What, what is the meaning of my existence if there is any meaning at all? I've searched hard for wisdom, digging deep for the purpose of life, yet I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Shout out to you too. So what, what do I do next? Well, at this point, I think there's two main choices. One is to completely give up and to give in to despair. That's not what Solomon does. He continues his quest, and that's not what we should do either. The best alternative is to admit that we do not have all the answers. 
but also to believe that God still does, and then to wait for whatever wisdom he provides. This is the way of, of humility and faith. It's what John Calvin once called a learned ignorance, is how he describes it. We should try as hard as we can to understand the meaning of life, but we should also be content to confess that there are some mysteries that we are just not going to understand. Knowing the limits of wisdom is part of wisdom. The more we know, the more we should realize how little we know, and that whatever wisdom we gain, it comes as a gift from God. As frustrating as it was to fail to find the meaning of life here, what the preacher found next is even more discouraging. In verse 24, he, he announced that wisdom was too deep for anyone to get to the bottom of. Well, verse 25 is that, that he kept looking anyway, trying to understand the difference between the wise way and the foolish way to live. And what he discovered was the darkest mystery and the deepest problem of all, which is the depravity of the human heart. In one way or another, the troubles of life always come back to the problem of sin. And as disappointed as Solomon was with life in general, his biggest disappointment is just looking at the evil nature of other people. So as an example, he describes uh, in verse 26 one kind of, of woman that it would be wise to avoid. He says, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Fetters are, are something that bind. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, before we, we read these verses as being sexist and disparaging women, and that's the application we take from it, that's not the application from this, we need to see these verses in their total context. Taken as a whole, the Bible uh, has much, if not more, to say about sinful men than sinful women. Okay, Why is that? Because sin is present in all people, man, women, children. We see that here in Ecclesiastes. Before we, we start to think that Solomon is viewing men any more positively than women, remember what he says back in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even the one good man that he found in a thousand, that's still a sinner. Okay? So the example of a woman Solomon uses here, now this could be, there's differing opinions and commentaries of what he's actually talking about. This was a hard passage, guys. Uh, it could be someone he actually experienced and, and uh, encountered and was tempted by in his own life. But with all the talk of wisdom in this chapter, another likely reading is that this is an allusion back to the book of Proverbs. So if you think back in the book of Proverbs, there we see that uh, a woman is personified as folly, but wisdom is also personified as what? A, a, a woman. Wisdom, uh, a woman is wisdom, a, a woman is folly. So what Solomon uh, is, is trying to say in Proverbs and here again in Ecclesiastes that he wants us to pursue wisdom and not pursue folly and the trap that folly has for us. Solomon, though, he gives good news for someone who may be trapped in the grip of folly. He says there's a way to escape. He says that although the, the rebellious sinner will be trapped by the temptress, the person who pleases God will find a way to flee. So we should never say or have an attitude of that, I, I just can't stop sinning. Like, what, hey, what are you going to do? always believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a way to flee from temptation, just like Joseph did when he was literally caught in the clutches of Potiphar's wife. Believe the gospel. Take your sin straight to the cross and confess it. Grow in the knowledge of God through the ministry of his word. Pray for holiness. Ask a friend to help you pray. 
Get the shepherding help of, of a pastor or elder in the church. Seek the pleasure of God, and by His grace, He will deliver you from the power of sin. By telling us that there is a way of escape, what Solomon is making clear is that he does believe in the possibility of holiness. But he was still disappointed by all the ungodliness that's around him. If he had met one sinful woman, he'd met a thousand. If he'd met one sinful man, he'd met a thousand. Listen to the futility of his quest to find something, someone living a wise and righteous life. Verses 27-28, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. Although he's not coming right out and saying it, the implication seems to be that he, he's looking for a wise and righteous person. I think he knows that he's not following under that category, so he's trying to find someone else. And out of a thousand men, he could only find one who did not disappoint him, and out of a thousand women, none at all. So even the best of humanity is nothing more than a sinner that is saved by grace. We're reminded of this by the last verse in Ecclesiastes 7. He, he laments in verse 29, See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. These are like wicked, devious schemes, is, is what he's saying with that word. So here, we have an accusation against humanity. What Charles Bridges called a humbling testimony to the universal and total corruption of the whole race of man. Solomon takes the entire human race, he places it under the category of evil. There's no point in arguing about who he thinks is more or less righteous, or Solomon saying, man, of the men that I knew, one-tenth of one percent was more righteous than the zero women. It's zero, okay? The one-tenth of one percent and zero is still zero. He can't find anyone righteous. None of them are truly righteous. All are sinners. All are evil. All are marked by folly unless God intervenes. Theologians have long recognized Ecclesiastes 7.29 as really an important verse for Christian doctrine, a, a verse that, that teaches us about both creation and the fall, even within this, this little verse. It begins at the beginning with the way God made us in the first place. Many people try to blame God for everything that is wrong with the world, but he's not the one to blame. According to this verse, which agrees what we see in the, the opening chapters of Scripture, God made man upright. That means good. That means righteous. This is the biblical doctrine of original righteousness. When the preacher says man, the word he's using here is Adam, which sounds like what? Adam, right? Who was the father of us all. In, in his created condition, Adam was perfectly righteous. But Adam chose to eat the forbidden fruit. And in making that choice, he doomed all of his children, us, to that same corruption. This is the biblical doctrine of original sin, which proves that God is not to blame for the sin of our race. Charles Bridges again wrote, By his own free will, Adam became the author of his own ruin. Not just his own ruin, Adam's sin is the ruin of us all. Uh, John Calvin uses a, a, an analogy. He compares Adam to a root that goes rotten, that then ruins the entire tree. This is the story of the family tree of humanity. Because of the sin that we have inherited from Adam, what Ecclesiastes says is true for all of us. We have pursued a wide variety of wicked and devious schemes. Now, this may not have been the answer that Solomon was hoping for when he started looking for the meaning of life, but it is essential for us 
to know uh, for true wisdom. One of the first things that we need to understand is the human condition. I mean, what, what doctrine has greater explanatory power than the doctrine of total depravity, which teaches that the problem with the world is not God, but it is us and our sin. Depravity is the one doctrine of the Christian faith that I don't think you need faith to believe it. You can prove that one with facts. Go home this week, watch the news a couple nights in a row, and see how pervasive evil is in the hearts of mankind. The Apostle Paul, he writes in Romans 5.12, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And that's as far as Ecclesiastes 7 takes us. That's how it ends. That only God makes man upright, man pursues schemes, wickedness, evil. But that's not as far as we should go. If we stop with the doctrine of sin, we stop short of salvation, and yeah, then it feels like everything is lost. As Pascal once said, knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God, that makes for despair. Well, thank God the Bible does not stop with creation in the fall, but it goes on to teach redemption by grace. The first Adam is not the only Adam. There's also the last Adam or the second Adam Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, which is one of the titles that the Bible has given to Jesus Christ. Seeing that, that the first Adam failed to remain upright, we should turn to the last Adam for our salvation, asking him to help us stand firm at the final judgment. Jesus Christ is the only man who ever remained totally upright, who never fell into sin and schemes. And by virtue of his perfect life and atoning death, he offers to forgive us for all of our wicked schemes. Although it is true, as we see in Romans 5, that many died through one man's trespass, it's also true that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will live through the one man, Jesus Christ. Even if, if we don't have the wisdom to solve all the deep mysteries of life or to figure out everything there is to know about our place in the universe, we should at least be wise enough to see that the fatal sin in our own hearts and to ask Jesus to take care of that sin and to be our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. And even though a passage like this can at first glance seem difficult to understand, uh, it's just so beautiful to see how your truth shines through, God. Um, Lord, we are we're evil. We're sinful. We are lost without you. We, we can't pursue over-righteousness or, or, or wisdom that we think is going to save ourselves. We only can do this with you. Um, God, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be the upright one, to be that one righteous man who uh, not only lived a perfect life, but willingly gave himself up on the cross that took the punishment that we deserve for our sin so that we don't have to experience that, and then gave us the hope of life through the resurrection so that we can be a people who, who don't fear death but look forward to what comes after this life. God, I pray for us in this room that you would help us to be people um, who are seeking you, who are searching for wisdom with the understanding that, that what you give us just comes as a gift from you, that you're going to give us uh, only only what you want to give us, that uh, there are going to be limits to it, but you've given us enough to know the truth and to know who you are. God, I pray this week as we have a week of prayer and fasting and as we look at a passage like this, that we just would see the need that we have for you in our daily lives, that um, hopefully this week will be a week marked by pursuing you, of, of listening to you, of talking to you, of speaking to you, and of, of um, 
just understanding what it is, the purpose you've given for each one of us in our lives. God, please just be with us as we continue to worship you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.